Welcome to the Friends with the Bible podcast, where we get to know the Bible and each other better. My name is Christine, and I'm your host. I like to take my time digging into the Bible and sharing what I've learned with my friends, which is what this podcast is all about. So welcome to what is likely your first deep dive into Habakkuk. We'll start with an introduction to Habakkuk today so we have the backstory, and then next time my friends will be joining me so we can talk about what Habakkuk has to share with us. Habakkuk isn't a very commonly studied book, but I chose to write a study on this book in particular because I'm a big nerd when it comes to the prophets, and while Jeremiah is my absolute favorite prophet, and I'd love to write a study on his prophecies, his book is really, really long, and it covers a huge span of time and a very diverse set of themes. It would take years and years to get through the whole thing. On the other hand, Habakkuk's prophecies, while they were written in close time proximity to when Jeremiah was written, it sticks with only a few main themes and it only has three chapters, all of which make this book much more digestible. Plus, who doesn't love to say Habakkuk? It's a really interesting name. When I started writing and researching the study, I was thinking that this book was going to be the junior varsity version of Jeremiah, but I hope by the time we're done that you'll see how Habakkuk has earned a place as one of the big names in biblical history, how unique and remarkable he was, and that the topics Habakkuk wrestles through are universal and hugely important to every person of faith. I think one of the main reasons people don't often study Habakkuk is because it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you have a whole boatload of context to understand its place properly. Most people lack the before, during, and after knowledge to make sense of it. There's a lot of historical background that leads up to this book, a lot of international political influence that's transitioning as it's being written, and the book's depth and significance really can't be fully understood unless you know what's going to happen both in the immediate and distant future after Habakkuk is written. I'm going to do my best to fill you in on as much context as I can in this introduction. If this is your first Bible study or your first time hearing this information, please know that it might be overwhelming, but I encourage you to not give up. If you can get through the backstory, the actual story in Habakkuk will be so much richer for you. So let's start by digging into what makes Habakkuk a book worth studying. The minor prophets often get overlooked in the Bible, which is a shame because they contribute greatly to the deeper and more personal meaning that they add to the Old Testament. Habakkuk is considered one of the minor prophets, not because the work that he did or the influence that he had was minor, but because the volume of his writing and the time span of his writing is relatively small compared to the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Their works cover about 40 to 50 years, and they claim a lot of real estate in the pages of the Bible. The overarching message God sends through both the major and minor prophets like Habakkuk is consistent, but God's message is also unique to the specific circumstances that the prophet finds himself in, which adds to the richness of the entire biblical narrative. Habakkuk is unique from all the other books in the Bible in two major ways. The first is that it exists solely as a conversation between God and Habakkuk, whereas other prophetic books, 
We'll have narrative and messages from God to the prophet who writes the book, to individuals, to certain crowds, to the whole nation. So this is just God and Habakkuk. And two, the other reason it's so unique is that it was written entirely as a poem and it was meant to be recited as a song. So in order to really understand Habakkuk and grasp the deeper meaning behind the words on the page, remember I said that we were going to need to have a lot of historical context. I'm going to try to give you a quick refresher on history up to this point. And this is going to be like drinking from a fire hose, quick and dirty. So hang on. Now, if you're a visual person like me and you'd like to follow along with the timeline, you can Google 70 Weeks Prophets and Kings and click on the link that says 70weeks.net and you'll find a pretty solid timeline that'll help you visualize what I'm talking about. You'll likely remember Abraham, who was called out of his ancestral home in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was married to Sarah. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and eventually Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and they had twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was renamed Israel, and his 12 sons ended up settling down in Egypt during a big famine. And then, after many years there, they became enslaved to the Egyptians. God demanded that Pharaoh let my people go, and Moses parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites left Egypt. After the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years, and then God gave them his law. This is important to know for this study. This was not a set of man-made laws, but laws written by God himself for the purpose of right worship and for training in righteousness and for the well-being and prosperity of God's children. The Israelites then came into the land called Canaan that would later become the nation of Israel, where the 12 tribes set up their permanent homes and God made a covenant with the people to keep them there as long as they were obedient to the laws he gave them. After Moses died, there were judges who acted as authority figures over the nation, but the people eventually wanted a king over them like their neighboring nations had. God reluctantly gave them King Saul, followed by King David, and then King Solomon. These three kings were bipolar, not in the modern sense of a mood disorder, but in that they had epic spiritual failures and extraordinary love and devotion for God. Because of Solomon's dual-heartedness in loving God and also leading the people into pagan worship, the kingdom of Israel was fractured into two separate nations when he died. The northern kingdom was called Israel and held 10 of the 12 tribes, while the southern kingdom was called Judah and held the other two tribes as well as the capital city of Jerusalem with the temple and all of its gold and treasures in it. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had prophets that God sent to them. Our dear friend Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now we need to understand who the Babylonians were and why their existence was so relevant to Judah and to Habakkuk. The Babylonians were sometimes referred to as the Chaldeans. They were a pagan kingdom situated to the north and east of the land of Israel and Judah. They're referred to interchangeably as Babylonians and Chaldeans in Habakkuk, depending on your Bible translation. They're both correct 
but they're not quite the same thing, and I'll explain why. The name Chaldeans may sound familiar if you remember the story of Abraham being called by God out of his tribe or within the nation of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were descendants of Noah's son, Shem. Even in Habakkuk's time, they were an ancient, semi-nomadic ethnic group indigenous to what is now Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire rose up around the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were there first. The Babylonians came later, and they lived together in the same land. The Chaldeans were distinct among the Babylonians because they had positions of power and authority within their nation, which is why we see biblical authors refer to them by the ethnicity of their leaders, the Chaldeans, but also by the name of the nation they lived in, Babylon. They're one nation made up of two groups of people. The Babylonians were well-educated and held a lot of influence politically, in wealth, and in physical might. They were by no means a peaceful people. They were constantly warring against the nations around them, seeking more land and more power and more riches. The king of Babylon at the time of Habakkuk's writing was Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar is the father of Nebuchadnezzar, whose name will sound familiar if you've read Daniel and Jeremiah, and he is the first in line to become king after his father dies. Let's zoom in on Nabopolassar and what he's up to, since Habakkuk is closely watching Nabopolassar and the Babylonians in our study. Nabopolassar's main mission was to expand the Babylonian Empire by invading neighboring nations who had similar aspirations. One of those neighbors was the Assyrians. 200 years before Habakkuk picked up his pen, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took its people off into captivity. Those same Assyrians, for the next 200 years after taking Israel captive, continue in their work of warring in the name of power and wealth all the way up until the time Habakkuk picks up. The Assyrians see the Babylonians gaining in strength and they know that they don't stand a chance against the Babylonians alone, so they try to form an alliance with Egypt. But Nabopolassar and the Babylonians decide that the Assyrians are getting a little too big and too powerful and they need to be stopped before this alliance can solidify. The Babylonians are an indomitable force and they overthrow Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. This is why you'll see an end to Assyria on the timeline. After the Babylonians captured Nineveh, the Assyrian nobles fled to far outlying cities to the west, hoping for eventual asylum in Egypt. Running away was their only hope of escape from the ruthless slaughtering of the Babylonians. The Babylonians chased the Assyrians down and massacred them one by one and burned every inch of Nineveh to the ground. They wanted to completely wipe the Assyrians off the face of the earth. King Nabopolassar died during this pursuit, but his people still succeeded in conquering the Assyrians. Nabopolassar's death was right around the time that Habakkuk's writing came to an end. 
Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, would take over his father's mission of expanding Babylonian wealth and territory, and we'll start to see a lot of Old Testament prophecies beginning to come true with the start of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Babylon will not stand as a nation for very long, though, as they will eventually be conquered by the Medo-Persians, which you can read about in Daniel 5. So to recap, the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded and carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. 200 years later, the Assyrians attempted to form an alliance with Egypt to protect themselves against Babylon, who was menacingly looming over them. This is where Habakkuk's writing picks up and ends with Babylon overthrowing Assyria and eradicating them, and Babylon has its eyes set on Judah next. The people of Judah were living in fear of the Assyrians and utter terror of the Babylonians, knowing what both of these nations were capable of, which is the main focus of Habakkuk's writing. Judah's worst nightmare eventually came true. Babylon succeeded in invading Judah about 20 years after Habakkuk's writing came to an end. Let's focus on the reasons why the Babylonians invaded Judah, both politically and spiritually. Let's start with Judah's spiritual situation. If you look at a timeline of the kings of Judah, you can see a long line of kings from start to finish. I call this line the death spiral. There are some good, God-fearing kings, and there are some kings who bring the nation down in every sense of the word, and they get progressively worse as the timeline goes on. Josiah is the last king that we can call a good king, and he is the current king of Judah, as Habakkuk writes. King Josiah introduced reforms to rid the nation of idolatry and depravity, but ultimately he failed to get the nation under control. Judah had fallen into grave disobedience, and God was not pleased with them. They disobeyed the laws that God gave them back in the Sinai Desert before coming into their land. Having that land was part of the covenant. If they remained obedient to the law, they would stay in the land. If they disobeyed, they would be removed from the land. It was clear as day that the disobedience of Judah was a direct spiritual cause of the Babylonian invasion. Meanwhile, shifting over to the political side of things, King Josiah sees the alliance forming between Assyria and Egypt, and he's a smart king. He remembers what happened with Assyria taking over their brother nation Israel and bringing them into captivity. And he knows that God said his people would lose their land too if they were disobedient. He strongly opposes the Egypt-Assyria alliance because he knows that it would lay a clear path for Assyria to overtake his nation. So Josiah and his army went out and fought against the Egyptians and the Assyrians to prevent the alliance from forming. But King Josiah died in battle, killed by an Egyptian archer at Megiddo, which was in Assyrian territory. But what Josiah was not able to do, Babylon was. The Babylonians were also interested in preventing that alliance, but for different reasons. 
Babylon wanted the Assyrians' land and wealth and bragging rights for taking over and terrorizing such a powerful nation, which would have been a lot more difficult if the Assyrians were in alliance with Egypt. We will see Habakkuk's frustration with the degeneration of Judah under King Josiah and his successors, and his deep concern for the growing problem of Babylon's strength and reign of terror as we go deeper into this study. As for Babylon's motivations, it made sense that Nabopolassar and his son would have their eyes set on the land of Israel that Assyria had already conquered and on Judah. They were bent on completely obliterating everything Assyrian, and there were even more riches to be had further south of the Assyrian territory. Judah offered a walled city with an extravagant temple situated on top of a mountain with vast amounts of gold inside and a temple to a powerful god like none they had seen before. If they could conquer that temple, they believed they could conquer God himself and be seen as gods among men. And best of all, the people of Judah were easily swayed into submission to anything and everything. Judah was a sitting duck. So this sets the stage for where we will pick up in Habakkuk. The northern kingdom has long since been invaded and carried off into Assyria. Both the Babylonians and the Assyrians have risen up and are attacking their neighbors. The Babylonians conquer Assyria and chase them down all across Mesopotamia. Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, has his eyes set on Judah next. The people of Judah have fallen into depravity and they are terrified of the Babylonians. Seeing them in their land is a dreaded worst case scenario. Not long after the conclusion of Habakkuk, Judah will get no reprieve with the death of Nabopolassar, as the terrifying prophecies of Habakkuk and Isaiah and Jeremiah are going to come to pass. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, will not fail to fulfill his father's mission. Judah will fall to Babylon. The temple will be raided and looted. The king of Judah will be tortured and removed and its people will be forcibly marched to Babylon in captivity. The 400 years of silence will begin with God's children patiently waiting for the promised Messiah to come. Habakkuk is relevant today because it addresses the question of whether we will insist God conforms to our expectations of who he is and what he can and should do, and it highlights that justification by faith was alive and well even in the Old Testament and has always been part of God's redemptive plan. It did not begin when Jesus hit the scene. We'll take a look at who exactly that redemption was directed toward. The questions Habakkuk asks of God are timeless and universal, and so are the responses God gives him. In this study, we're going to explore how to rightly respond to a situation that we don't like and how to rightly respond to an answer we don't agree with. We will learn about what our expectations of God reveal about our knowledge of God and what we believe about the character of God. 
We'll learn about how God redeems everything in its time, and we'll learn that true worship happens when all the temporal blessings and the visible evidence of his presence are gone, and yet we still make the choice to praise him. This study will be six sessions long. Part one will be Habakkuk's complaint. Part two will be God's answer. Part three will be Habakkuk's tough questions. Part four will be God's response. Part five will be Habakkuk's final response. And then part six will be the conclusion. I've also written some discussion questions as part of the study that my friends and I will be talking through as we go. And there's a more detailed set of questions for you to work out with the group or on your own if you'd like. I'll provide a link for that in the description. Welcome to Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice.